One of the most glorious things about being born again into the kingdom of God is that you begin to realize that everything in life tells a story about the gospel. Seeds tell a story about the gospel. Seeds dies, they, they are, they're buried in the ground, and then what happens? They rise to new life. That tells us a story about the resurrection of Christ, John 12, 24. Rivers tell a story about the gospel. Um, rivers are constantly flowing. They're constantly emptying immeasurable quantities of water, and yet they never run out. Jesus said this is the gospel work of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Even wine tells a gospel story. Grapes uh, must be crushed to be made into wine, and, and Christ was crushed for our sins, Isaiah 53, 10. The blood of grapes turns to alcohol, and it induces a physiological peace, and the blood of Christ gives us peace with God, Romans 5, verse 1. That's, that's the smallest sampling, but everything in life, God designed to be images of divine things, images of the gospel. If we just learn to listen, we can, we can hear the story that they're telling. And in our passage this morning, Paul is telling us what we ought to do with our money. He's telling us that we should take a portion of our money um, in keeping with how God has blessed us and we're to give that away. Why? Well, ultimately, because a story needs to be told. Just as Jesus uh, became poor for our sake so that through his poverty we might become rich, so we are to use our money in imitation of him, that all eyes would be drawn to the Savior. In other words, the Lord has given us money to use it to tell the greatest story that's ever been told. That brings us to our big idea this morning. Money is a storyteller of Christ's gospel love. Therefore, give that his story might be told. So let's begin with our doctrine. And let's examine what the text says. Look with me in verse 1. Paul says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints. Let's stop right there. That phrase, now, concerning, indicates that Paul is probably responding to a question that the Corinthians had in the letter that they sent him. Uh, they, Paul uses a similar phrase in chapter 7, verse 1, where he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So in their letter, they probably asked something like this. Paul, um, what do we do with the poor saints in Jerusalem? How can we help them? And so Paul is addressing that. And this collection that he's speaking of, this collection for the saints, is a different one than, than he had mentioned earlier in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. There, Paul made a case for taking a collection for gospel preachers. He made 
gave six proofs that the church should do this. And he ended with saying that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But Paul is speaking about a different collection in this place, specifically for the saints that are in Jerusalem. If you look at verse 3, it's clear that that's where that collection is going. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Look at halfway through verse 1. Paul says concerning this collection, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So notice the comparison here. As I directed them, the churches in Galatia, so you. There were multiple churches in the region of Galatia. It's plural here. And Paul instructed all of them in this same matter. And now he turns to the Corinthians and he instructs them. Well, what do we deduce from this um, multiple church instruction? Well, simply that this type of collection that Paul has in view is required by all churches at all times and in all places. Um, It's a collection taken from one church body to help the saints in another place even those whom we have never met. What does that imply? Well, simply this, that we are to see the kingdom of Christ as a whole, not um, just look out for the needs of our own congregation. Yes, we should meet the needs of our family. Yes, we should meet the needs of this local church, but we're not allowed to stop there. Christ expects us to, to press our finances out into the kingdom because it's his money that he has loaned us. Secondly, notice that this is a command in verse 1. The last clause is in the imperative mood. So you also are to do. This is a a command specifically about your and my money. Well, who has a right to tell us what to do with our money? Christ does. Christ does. Paul said in in chapter 14, verse 37, these are Paul's words to be sure, but he says, the things that I'm writing to you are a command from the Lord. So loved ones, friends, boys and girls, children, when we become Christians, the very first thing that we must realize is that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Every cell in our body, every hair on our head, every penny in our bank account belongs to someone else. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism sums it up well. What is your only comfort in life and death that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, how does that relate to our money? As I was thinking through this question, I realized that I have been misspeaking on the topic of collections for years. Because when we take up our collection, I often say something like this. God doesn't need your money. Well, that's a technically false statement. Um, Not because God needs something, but because it's not your money. It's not my money. 
It belongs to the Savior. Um, Private property holds true in terms of horizontal, human to human. Your stuff is your stuff. It's not mine. But on a vertical level, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. We are not owners. We are stewards. And so when he commands, we have an obligation to obey. Consider next when we should take up this collection. Verse 2. On the first day of every week. It's today. Um, in the Greek, it's literally um, on the sabbaton. It's uh, the Sabbath. It's a Greek transliteration of the Sabbath. Paul uses the exact same word uh, that, that the Septuagint used in the fourth commandment, sabbaton, to describe the new day that Christians are to gather for worship. That's not an accident. Um, it, it's just not true, as some suppose, that, that the Sabbath ceased under the new covenant. The New Testament explicitly calls this day the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.9. This is the day that Christ rose from the dead, John 21. This is the day that the church reflexively, from the beginning, assembled for worship, Acts 20, verse 7. And this is why the Reformers um, concluded that the Sabbath celebration is not a human tradition. We're not here by human tradition, but it's a part of the apostolic authoritative teaching. So here Paul is saying that in addition to hearing the word preached, on the Lord's Day, in, in addition to singing and the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, a collection is to be taken up as a part of the worship that is due unto him on the first day of the week. Next, Paul tells us how we are to do this. Halfway through verse 2, he says, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up. Notice he says, each of you. The collection is not for a special class of people, uh, the super spiritual or the super rich. No, every Christian is called to participate. We're to put um, something aside, each of us aside for the Lord's work. How much are we to give? Verse 2, again, end of verse 2. Each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper. That's the manner. What does that mean? It's a little convoluted in my mind. I think that the NIV captures the sense of it well. It says that we are to give in keeping with our income. Uh, J.B. Phillips' translation says that we are to give according to our financial prosperity. So in another place, when Paul was taking up the same collection um, among the Macedonian churches, in 2 Corinthians 8.3, he says that they gave according to their means. Likewise, Luke records in Acts 11.29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So Paul is not saying, hey, you know what? Just give whatever you want. I think that's allowed 
if, if the first qualifier is accepted. He's not saying give whatever you want. He says that we need to give according to the manner that God has blessed us. Paul then directs the Corinthians to gather this collection. End of verse 2. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Now that had um, circumstances. Uh, Paul was trying to make sure that the, the offering could get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible. But there's a principle here for us. Um, Christian generosity should be the, uh, the normal rhythm of our lives. Uh, not just when important people show up at the church. If the collection was ready when Paul arrived, it meant that the Corinthians had adopted this part of worship as the non-negotiable rhythm of a redeemed life. Finally, he says in verses 3 and 4, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. The principle here is accountability. There was going to be multiple people that were accountable to make sure this gift got in the right hands. Um, we ought to be learned from this that we need to be careful with the Lord's money. It's not a light task. Many of God's sheep have been fleeced by wolves coming in and... Um, stealing money from the flock. And so finally we just arrive at the destination of where this gift was going, to Jerusalem. So what was it about Jerusalem in particular that made the saints there especially needy? In the New Testament, at least five different churches were pouring money into Jerusalem. Uh, Antioch uh, sent them aid, Acts 11, 28, and 29. The church in Philippi and Thessalonica sent them aid, Romans 15, 25, and 26. And then here we are told that Corinth and Galatia were sending them aid. So what the heck was going on in Jerusalem? Um, why did they need particular assistance? Well, three distresses in particular. First, in Jerusalem, there was widespread persecution of Christians since Pentecost. Widespread persecution of Christians since Pentecost. We often think about the Romans persecuting the Christians. The Romans didn't actually even start persecuting the Christians officially until Nero um, was Caesar. And that happened 54 to 68 AD. But how... But the Jews were persecuting the Christians um, ever since um, Christ walked the earth. And they were doing it at every turn. Just go read the book of Acts. There's two stories going on. The gospel is going out and the Jews are persecuting the Christians, preaching it at every single turn. I mean, think of it this way. Jerusalem was the Afghanistan in the first century. According to Matthew 23, 32 through 36, Jerusalem was the most wicked city on earth because they had filled up the measure of their father's sins by killing, crucifying, flogging, and persecuting from town to town all of the Lord's people. And so the Christians were under extreme distress in Jerusalem. 
The second distress was that the Jews had excommunicated all Christian converts from the synagogue. They had excommunicated all Christian converts from the synagogue. And this resulted in the most vulnerable Christians, uh, widows and, and the fatherless, being cut off from aid. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 6. There's this, this need for widows to be taken care of. The third distress is that as prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 24, the Christians in Jerusalem were about to go through the Great Tribulation. We often think about the Great Tribulation being in the future. Jesus said it was in the past in Jerusalem in AD 70. And when this happened, um, these Christians were going to lose everything except for the clothes on their back. He, he told them, when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains in Judea. They were, they were running for their lives, and so they needed special care from the other churches. Now, for those three reasons, we see why the Jerusalem church needed aid. Now, our circumstances today are different. But the principle is exactly the same. We are to give to the saints in need, not just our own congregation, but saints around the world. Boys and girls, children, this is a very important question. Does God need money from us? Does God need money from us? Does he need money from you? Is he just waiting for you to become an adult so he can start pilfering your wallet? No, not at all. He tells us in Psalm 50 verse 10 that every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Okay, well, if that's true, then why does he ask us to give us money that he doesn't need? Why does he ask us to give us money that he doesn't need? Because he wants to tell a story through our giving. And so we arrive at our doctrine this morning. Money is a storyteller of Christ's gospel love. And so consider Three stories that are told through our giving. Story number one, giving tells the story of Christ's advancing kingdom. Giving tells the story of Christ's advancing kingdom. Did you notice um, what came immediately before this command to give? Look at verse 58 in chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think that the chapter break here is somewhat um, unfortunate. These chapter breaks in the Bible are not inspired. They were put in later to help us find um, sections that we're looking for. But I think that there is a flow um, from verse 58 to verse 1. Um, it's not an accident that, that Paul mentions giving money 
as the first thing after he says, your labor is not in vain. We have the advantage 2,000 years later to see what the generosity of these churches that were pouring money into Jerusalem um, produced. That their giving to that church was not in vain. Did the Jewish persecutors triumph over the Christians? No, they did not. They were utterly destroyed in AD 70. What happened to the the Jewish Christians during the, the Great Tribulation? Well, not only did many of them escape, but Revelation 14.4 says that these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. The Jewish converts that were rescued from that destruction became the firstfruits for mankind, meaning that they were the pledge, the promise of a harvest that would ripple all over the world. The churches who gave to those saints participated in that work. That's amazing. Not only does does giving tell the story of Christ's advancing kingdom, giving actually is a means to participate in Christ's advancing kingdom. Story number two. Giving tells the story of true Christian love. Giving tells the story of true Christian love. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Just one book over to the right. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Look what he says here about the Macedonian churches and their giving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So get that. These extremely poor saints, they not only gave in their affliction, they not only gave beyond their own ability, meaning um, it's not that they just had to go without Netflix or something, they skipped meals. Not only that, though, it it says that they begged to do so. Please, please take from our table so that the saints in Jerusalem can be fed and taken care of. I mean, that's unbelievable. The love of the family of God was in their bones. It was more important to them than even their daily needs. They saw the saints suffering and they chose to give from their own necessities so that they could suffer with them. That's what the body is, isn't it? If one member suffers, all suffer together. So that's the second story that giving tells. It tells the story of true Christian love. Story number three, giving tells the story of the praiseworthiness of God. 
Giving tells the story of the praiseworthiness of God. Look just over one chapter in 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 11. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is the greatest story that giving tells. Giving purchases praise for God. God is glorified and praised when the world sees that Christians love God more than their wallet. We've experienced this here at, at this local church. Um, when, when COVID hit two, two years ago, we were going to be out of our lease. Our lease was up. And for the last decade or so, we'd only had $20,000 in our bank account. So even if we could find a building after leaving this place, we weren't even close enough for a down payment. What were we going to do? Well, God did something. He he poured out his grace on a couple individuals and they gave a six-figure check and then they decided they were going to finance the purchase of this building. And you know what the greatest thing about that whole thing was? It wasn't the money. It was, oh God, how great and awesome and kind and faithful and generous you are in taking care of all of our needs. Praise be to God for what you have done. That's the third story that giving tells, the praiseworthiness of God. So in summary, giving is one of the great duties that we have as Christians. Jonathan Edwards says here that it's not merely a commendable thing for a man to be kind and bountiful to the poor, but it's his bounden duty as much as a duty to pray or to attend public worship or anything else, whatever. Why? Because money is a storyteller of Christ's gospel love. That's our doctrine. So let's now turn to our duty. Our first duty is to think carefully about giving, and specifically, your giving. Now, remember that the collection in view in this chapter is specifically for helping saints in need. And I, I think that's different than the normal giving that sustains the ministry of a local church. So my question here is, what should our normal giving look like? Should Christians tithe. Uh, tithing, uh, 10% of one's income, was part of the old covenant law of Israel. Leviticus 27.30, Numbers 18.24, this is, this is undisputed. Now, some Christians will say that tithing is no longer required because the civil and ceremonial law has been put away, or they'll say it's 
it's no longer required because um, it's not uh, reestablished or renewed in the New Testament. But other Christians will say that, wait a second, God's people tithed even before the law was even established. Abraham tithed in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. Jacob tithed in Genesis 28, 20 through 22. This was a pre-law principle. Furthermore, in the New Testament, Jesus told the Pharisees that they ought not to have neglected tithing in Matthew 23, 23, which would have been a very strange command if tithing was about to end in just a week when he was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. Now, given those counter-arguments, I actually believe that tithing is still part of God's economy, or that he advances his kingdom on the earth. That's not my intention to stand up here and tell you uh, or command you that you ought to tithe. I actually believe that that's something that all of us should work out with the Scripture and with the Lord. But given the fact that we live in the most prosperous nation on earth, I actually think it's difficult to argue that we ought to give less. Randy Alcorn had a helpful analogy. He said that we ought to think of tithing as the training wheels of giving. It's a helpful starting point. Now, now for some of you um, who, who might live on a fixed, limited income, you might not even be able to make that great of a sacrifice. But for others, 10% is actually far too little considering how much God has blessed them. I will say that the statistics on this particular thing are, are very depressing. In 2007, Barna uh, released a report that said, quote, among all born-again adults in America, only 9% tithed one-tenth or more of their income, 9% of born-again Christians. Now, I wholeheartedly believe that the American church is falling short of giving in the way that the apostle commands here. It can't be said that 91% of the American church is giving in keeping with their income. So that's our first duty. We must think and pray and search the scriptures carefully about what God would have us to give. Our second duty is to examine the way that we give. Our giving always, always tells a story. It's, our giving is an inescapable concept, not whether but which. Not whether our money is telling a story, but which story is our money telling? So it's not whether our money is building a kingdom, but which kingdom is it building? So loved ones, examine yourself. Are you giving in keeping with your income? What story does your checkbook tell you? Sit down with it and let it speak. Will it tell you that you spend more money on this worthless thing over here than the Lord's work? I'm not talking about you have needs. All of us have needs. But we also have a, a, a massive disposable income. What story does our income tell us? What kingdom are you building with your money? 
Are you building a kingdom that will uh, last for generations or, or one that will be forgotten in the dustbin of history? So that's our second duty. We must examine how we give. Our third duty is to answer objections that are no doubt now arising in our hearts. Answer those objections. So the first objection is this. Well, I don't have enough money to give. That's the first objection. I don't have enough money to give. And for some Christians, that's completely true. Um, Paul wasn't taking a collection from the saints in Jerusalem to give to other saints elsewhere. It would be backwards to take a collection for others who are doing better off than you. Now, that qualification aside, almost everybody in every economic class can make this statement that I don't have enough to give. The question that we must ask is this, you don't have enough for what? You don't have enough for what? Um, You don't have enough to give and maintain your particular lifestyle? Well, that might be difficult to do. Um, This is one of the reasons why, why many evangelicals who are unable to homeschool justify sending their kids to the public school. They say they don't have enough money to send their kids to a private Christian school. But very often, they don't have enough money because they're unwilling to alter their comfortable lifestyle. They don't want to sacrifice their grown-up toys for the sake of something better. If we are never required to help others at the cost of the comforts of our lifestyle, then how can we ever bear the burdens of our neighbor? Galatians 6.2, if we never need to be burdened. So if your objection is, is um, I don't have enough, then ask yourself, you don't have enough for what? For what? The second objection is that I'm scared to give because the future looks so uncertain. I'm scared to give because the future looks so uncertain. Do you realize what was going on when Paul wrote these words? Corinthians lived in a world that was far worse than ours, that was their, and their future was far scarier than ours was. They just experienced a worldwide famine, Acts 11, 20 through 30. More famine was promised, Matthew 24, 7, as well as earthquakes, Matthew 24, 7. Widespread war, Matthew 24, 6 through 7. Persecution, Matthew 24, 9. Betrayal, heresy, apostasy, Matthew 24, 10 through 11. And on top of all of that, the great tribulation was coming. The world that they lived in was far scarier than ours. Yet Paul commanded generosity. Why? Beloved, because money doesn't keep you safe. Money can't keep you secure. Money can't protect you. Money can't satisfy you. Only God can do those things. A good economy cannot keep you safe. 
The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this day forth and forevermore. That's who your Lord is. Do not fear. What, what does the scripture say? It says that I have been young and now I am old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the things that you need, will be added to you. Don't judge the future by what your eyes see. Judge the future by what God says. And that brings us then to our fourth duty, which is rebuke and I need you to listen very carefully to these qualifiers because this rebuke will not attach to you unless these things are true. If you fail to give, not because you're facing a desperate situation, but rather because you're unwilling, or if you give so little that it's not in keeping with your income, then Be rebuked by the scripture. How can you be so unkind after Christ has been so kind to you? What would become of us if Christ was as stingy with his blood as you are with your money? Don't you realize the things that scripture says against such people? Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 9, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, lest he cry to the Lord against you. And you be guilty of sin. Or 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Those who love in word only, without good works, have a dead faith. James 2.26 I think many of us think that The reason that that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was because of their their blatant homosexuality. Well, that's true, but he actually also gives us another reason why he destroyed them. It's because she had plenty and she refused to give to those in need. Ezekiel 16, 49, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. This sin is extremely offensive to the Lord because it lies about who he is. A selfish heart is a pharisaical, devilish heart. Let's turn to our final point, which is our delight. I was telling Pastor Abi yesterday, he came to my office when I was studying this passage, and I, I just told him, I am so convicted by this passage. I can see how I have failed in many ways to have a generous heart. Perhaps that's you. Or perhaps you're on the other side 
Perhaps truly it can be said of you that you are a very generous person. That's the first word that people think of when your name comes up. That person is generous. You're in that small group that gives more than 10%. I praise God for that if that's you. But do you know what? You have still sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in the way that you give. Loved ones, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know what? You give better than that person, so you're good with me. That's not how he grades. The only people that God lets into heaven are perfect people, spotless people, pure people, holy people. And unless you have been perfectly generous in all of your dealings, your giving falls short of the standard required in God's courtroom, which means this, that you and I have a sin debt that we could never pay off no matter how much we give, even if we sold everything that we have. We could never pay off the sin debt that we owe. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Loved ones, this is why God sent his only son into the world, to pay the sin debt that we could never pay. Oh, behold the love of God. He didn't give us cheap gifts like gold and silver and earthly kingdoms. He gave us the most costly gift, the most precious gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus give us? What comfort did he spare? What did he hold back? He held back nothing. He gave his breath, his life, his blood, his back. He gave up his spirit. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. On the cross, the Father imputed all of our sin to Christ's account. And when he did that, he removed all of our debt. All of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But loved ones, that's only... It's only half of the gospel. Imputing our sins to Christ is only half of the gospel. The other half is just as good. Since Jesus never sinned, God imputed all of his righteousness to our account. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we, you and I, worms of the dust, wretches, might become the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. What great work must we do to earn this? What great thing must we do to achieve this? Nothing. 
no great work. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Are you ungodly this morning? Good news. This is what the scripture says. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Loved ones, that's the gospel. The gospel is God giving, giving, giving. It's the Father giving His Son. It's the Son giving His blood and righteousness. It's the Spirit giving the new birth. The gospel is God giving grace, peace, eternal life to undeserving sinners like you and me. Christians are not Christians because they give. Christians are Christians because the Father gave, the Son gave, and the Holy Spirit gave. So in the words of Jack Miller, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. And so let me close with one final exhortation. In light of the mercies of God, in light of this giving God, loved ones, give generously. Tell the story of the gospel with your giving. Give so that precious brothers and sisters who are suffering can be relieved. Give knowing with confidence that the increase of his government shall know no end. Give knowing that it will overflow to the praise and honor of God. Give knowing that future generations from from now will taste and see the grace of God from wells that they did not dig and vineyards that they did not plant. Give with a cheerful heart knowing that God will repay you with greater wealth than you could ever imagine. Jesus said, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Loved ones, tell the gospel story in your giving. Let's pray.